Scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 3, 1 through 15. That's page 3 in your pew Bible. And then we're going to flip over to Matthew 1, 18 through 21, which is going to be page 933 is where that's going to start. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Matthew 1 18 to 21. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what, she <clears throat> because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We begin a new series this morning. Expecting Christ in Genesis. And you may be thinking to yourself, the preachers made a mistake. How can you preach Advent, Christmas from Genesis? And yet we follow the example of our Lord Jesus himself in Luke 24 when he told his disciples that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Advent comes from the Latin verb advenire, meaning to arrive, to come. Expectation is something that God builds into the fabric of Scripture from the very beginning. In the next few weeks together, we'll be looking at 
how we come to expect the coming of our Lord Jesus from the book of Genesis. This morning we will look at the promise that one of Eve's descendants will crush the head of the serpent. Next week we will consider the humility of Christ's incarnation in contrast with the Tower of Babel. We will look at the accomplishment of Christ's death in Genesis 22 and the extent of Christ's rule over all nations in Genesis 49. So this morning we begin back at the beginning in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind. The serpent makes a direct challenge to the word and character of God by challenging our ancestors. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Our ancestors were deceived by the lies of the serpent who places himself in opposition to the word and character of God. When we ate the forbidden fruit, we brought sin and death into the world. We discovered in Genesis many weeks ago that evil in the world is equated with disobedience to the will of God. Our ancestors tried to make a covering for their sin, an initial and inadequate attempt at atonement as they sewed fig leaves together. This is like placing a single layer of saran wrap on top of a volcano in its effectiveness. It's like trying to hold back the Hoover Dam with a child's arrangement of toothpicks. The torrent of sin that's in the world is immense and requires blood atonement. There is a conflict in the beginning of the Bible, a conflict that is set between trusting in God and failing to do so. This fall of humanity marks out the beginning story of the Bible, and yet we do not have to wait very long for God's promise of redemption. Genesis 3.14, the Lord comes in judgment And he comes first to the serpent. Look at Genesis 3.14. God comes to the serpent and pronounces that the serpent is to be cursed. To curse is the antonym of to bless. And in the Bible, to curse means to invoke God's judgment on someone, usually for some particular offense. Curses are dependent on God's will to be effective. And yet here, we have God himself pronouncing a word of judgment. Its effect is guaranteed. Though Adam and Eve are culpable for their sin, God first comes to curse the serpent and not humanity whom God intends to save. The serpent is further judged with the image of crawling on your belly, eating dust all the days of your life. Symbolic language of God's judgment on the serpent. There is a conflict in Genesis, a conflict between the will of God and the will and intention of the serpent. God's judgment comes further in Genesis 3.15, and God solemnly declares that I will place enmity, I will set hostility between you, that is the serpent, the devil, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Genesis 3.15 begins with these solemn declarations of God that there will be a conflict. Praise God, not everyone will go the way of the serpent. 
God says, I will set this hostility, where we get the word enemy, between you. There will be a conflict. And yet, the first announcement of God's victory comes right after this. The last phrase of Genesis 3.15, God says that He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. There will be a descendant of Eve who will come in power and authority and destroy the works of the devil. This is good news from Scripture. Martin Luther said that Genesis 3, 14, and 15 contains whatever is excellent in Scripture. I don't know if that's what you think of when you think of Genesis 3, 15, but it should be the, a refrigerator verse. Because Luther rightly observes whatever is great and excellent in Scripture is contained here in promise, in miniature. He's not alone in understanding it in this way. The very first interpretation of the Bible that we have is when the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek about 250 years before Christ's birth. In this translation was done by 70 scholars, and that's, it's called the LXX for this reason. If your Roman numerals are rusty, remember that L is 50, X is 10, and another X is 10 more for 70. The translation of the 70 renders Genesis 3.15 that he will crush your head. Ralph Martin writes that the Greek idiom prefers a neuter, and yet these translators translate it with a masculine singular pronoun, meaning he, meaning one of Eve's descendants would arise to crush the head of the serpent. This is very good news, and it's the fuel of the Advent flames. The Aramaic translation of the Hebrew text similarly understands Genesis 3.15 to refer to the coming Messiah. The Targum translates, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the offspring of your children, the offspring of her children. For them, however, there will be a remedy. But for you, there will be no remedy. And they are to make peace in the end, in the days of the King Messiah. Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of the gospel. Micah 7 says that nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths. Their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like the snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. And many will turn to the Lord. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression. You do not stay angry forever, O Lord, but delight to show mercy. Genesis 3 is the first lighting of the hope of Scripture that the serpent's deception would not be the final word. And I want to tell you from the Word of God this morning that the power of the devil is broken in your lives and in mine through Jesus Christ. Does the New Testament invite us to see our Lord Jesus as this descendant? Surely it does. Matthew chapter 1 begins the opening phrase of the New Testament. It says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
referring back to that formulaic phrase in Genesis, these are the generations. Matthew is telling us that the story of Jesus' birth is connected to the scriptures of old. Matthew tells us that Israel's exile has come to an end with the birth of Christ. And then he focuses in on Christ's birth. And he tells us this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And notice the focus on Mary. His mother Mary, Matthew tells us, was pledged to be married. But before they came together, she was pregnant through the Holy Spirit. It's the angel of the living God who explains why this has come about in this way. The angel comes to Joseph in Matthew 1.20 and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. A miraculous birth. Conception from the woman. And it is this presentation of Mary giving birth to Jesus. Just like the promise in Genesis 3 that the descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Very rarely in Scripture is the birth of a child described with a focus on the mother in this way. And yet Matthew's retelling of the birth of Jesus invites us to make this link to Genesis 3.15, that it's one of Eve's descendants who would shatter the power of the devil and crush his head. Amen? Matthew tells us that Eve will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And the name Jesus means that Yahweh saves. God saves us, saves us from our sins, saves us from the condemnation of hell, saves us from the power of our adversary. Jesus' birth comes with an announcement of God's intention to save and to rescue humanity. Genesis 3.15 is seen in connection with the birth of our Lord Jesus throughout church history. Let me give you just a sample. I had to skip three pages in the first service. I hope I can cover more of these now. I learned I have to rush at this section. But let me just tell you a few examples. In the second century, Justin Martyr in the Middle East, he says, just as Eve conceived the word of the serpent and brought forth disobedience and death, Mary receives with faith and joy the announcement of Gabriel that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. And by her has he been born, to whom we have proved by so many scriptures, and by whom God destroys both the serpent and those like him, and works deliverance for those who repent and believe. Irenaeus, a French early Christian leader, writes of Genesis 3.15 that the Lord summed up in himself this enmity, when he was born from a woman and he trod upon the serpent's head. Cyprian in North Africa says of Genesis 3.15 that this seed God foretold would proceed from the woman and would trample on the head of the devil. And we move forward to the Reformation. And John Calvin, speaking of this in a sermon on October 7, 1559, when he hit Genesis 3.15, he just went off for 20 minutes. It's really a great sermon. And he says of Genesis 3.15, 3, 
that this text is the first gospel. It's the first promise of salvation which glowed like a feeble spark until Christ, the Son of Righteousness, fully illumined the whole world. Calvin called it the proto-evangelium, which kind of rolls off the tongue. It's the ultimate Scrabble word. If you used to do proto-evangelium and Scrabble, you win the game. You have to use the letters from everyone else's hand. But it is the first gospel, the first announcement of good news. And do not miss the fact, this is so precious, that God announces His intention to save even before He addresses humanity. Isn't that powerful? The guilt of our sin hangs over us, and God announces a defeat, a total defeat to the serpent, and an intention to save before He even speaks to us. This is the first summons of the Gospel. William Tyndale said that Christ is this woman's seed. He it is that hath trodden underfoot the devil's head. That is to say, sin, death, hell, and all his power. The German scholar Franz Dalich said that the entire decree of redemption is prefigured in this first word. Isn't it great that we don't have to wait a few verses? We don't have to wait a few chapters. We don't have to wait a few books of the Bible. We do not even have to wait a single verse before God, the God of Scripture who saves, announces from the very beginning His intention to save. God says He will save by means of a great victory. You see, there is a war and the, the greatest war that's going on right now in the world is this conflict between God and His truth and the truth of His character and the assault that the devil makes upon His trustworthiness from the dawn of creation. This war goes on in the world around us and this war happens in the chambers of everyone's heart. Meredith Klein says of Genesis 3.15 that God does not abandon us to the power of sin. No. The enmity springs from renewal of the image of God. It's the reverse side, the repentant side. Eve's seed consists of those who are like her and having hostility toward the evil one. These are the people of God. Genesis 15 is a declaration of a holy war instituted to prevent God, Satan's peace from settling over the earth. Genesis 3.15 depicts a climactic battle in this holy war and must be understood as a decisive victory over evil. You and I do not have the power to resist the assault of the devil without divine assistance. Our wills are not that powerful. We do not have the strength nor the resolve. The devil has a powerful accusation against you and me. His name means the accuser. And he sees our sinfulness and calls into question, what is your right or mine 
to stand in the presence of a holy God. And yet, God does what we cannot do. God claims our victory. God achieves our victory by the sending of His Son into the world. His Son who will take our sin upon His shoulders and He will crush the devil's head on the cross. The devil will strike at his heel and deal him a mortal wound, and yet the Son of God in glory rises victorious. If you this morning are in the grip of guilt or condemnation, I want to tell you from the Word of God that your sins have been atoned for. That one of Eve's descendants, Christ Jesus Himself, has achieved this victory. If you are overwhelmed this morning by the darkness in the world, I want to tell you from the Word of God that this descendant of Eve has triumphed and that he is in truth the Prince of Peace. God, the God of Scripture, is a saving God and He does not leave us in despair. This promise comes at the very dawn of creation. There was a catechism written in 1552 in England as a way of teaching biblical truths, questions, and answers. And this question is early in the catechism. What hope had Adam and Eve after they fell? That's a great question, isn't it? What hope do we have? We lit the candle of hope this morning. What is the hope that we have? And the answer And this catechism is this. The hope that Adam and Eve had after they fell is that God cursed the serpent, threatening him that the time should one day come when the seed of the woman should break his head. That's hope. Hope that God wins in the end and He does not leave us to perish, but He accomplishes salvation on our behalf. One of the great poets of the English language, John Milton, in his work, Paradise Lost, captured the sense of this promise in Book 10. In Book 10 of Paradise Lost, in the the poem, Michael, the archangel, is, is addressed by God. And God instructs Michael not to allow Adam and Eve to leave the garden in despair. And these are the key lines. He says, dismiss them not disconsolate. In other words, don't let them go discouraged. I cannot let you leave this place discouraged this morning. But instead, reveal. Reveal to Adam what shall come in future days as I shall thee enlighten. Intermix my covenant in the woman's seed renewed. So send them forth, those sorrowing, yet in peace. Dismiss them in peace, for God says, I will secure their redemption. And it is the New Testament, ultimately, that tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared in 1 John 3.8 was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appears is to destroy the devil's work. 
The God of Scripture is a saving God. And He promises at the very beginning that one day, one day, a descendant of Eve would arise and destroy the devil's work. To take out the teeth of his accusation and to pay blood atonement for our sins. It is this that takes us inside the Last Supper with our Lord Jesus in the presence of His disciples. Gathered before Him, He took bread and He broke it in their presence. And He said, this bread is My body, which is broken for you. And later in the meal, Jesus took the cup and He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in My blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is not the table of Kenwood Baptist Church. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who have believed in Him are welcome to partake of His broken body, His shed blood, His public defeat of the devil on our behalf. If you have never trusted in Him, I want you to trust in Him now. Receive His broken body and shed blood for our sins. If you know Christ this morning, I want to encourage you with this glorious truth that God has intended to save us from the very beginning. And that whatever cloud hangs over you, I want to dispel that from the Word of God with this word of hope in the first and wondrous announcement of the gospel to come. Let us pray. Precious Lord Jesus, we magnify you, victorious Son of God. We prepare our hearts, Lord, this morning to receive your broken body and your shed blood. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave us to perish, but from the very beginning you have intended to send your Son to save we thank you that the power of sin and death and hell is broken in the cross and that we who believe are made alive and forgiven forever. In Jesus' name, amen.